Well, good morning again. If you're joining us this morning for the first time, welcome. If you've been here many times before, welcome. Um, my name is Lawrence Simmons. I'm one of the pastors in the church, and we're, we're in the midst of our series on Matthew and Mark going through the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And it's been, it's been life-giving, I think, for, for me at least, to be able to go through the Sermon on the Mount. I feel like every Sunday the sermon is directed at me. So it's nice for you to be able to hear what I need to hear. But as we go through this again, today we get into Matthew 6, and we're really going to see more and more how Christ is really pulling us and directing us back to himself and what our motivations truly are and truly should look like. Let me pray here as we get going. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for your love and your mercy Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done. Lord, we thank you that that work is finished and that, that you are our God and that we are not and that we can hope and we can rest in you in the midst of conflict and fears, in the midst of strivings. Lord, we can just rest and we can take comfort in you knowing that you have our life and that within you is all the reward and the verdict that we desperately need. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your great love for us. Lord, again, show yourself to us. Lord, we are a forgetful people. Continue to remind us of your greatness and of your love for us. Lord, remind us this morning of who we are in you and the hope that we have in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been with us at all so far, we've been talking a lot about the kingdom, and within the, the Sermon on the Mount... Right, we're, we've gone through the first chapter of this, chapter 5 in Matthew here, and, and Christ, as every good philosopher and teacher does, he's answered for us a couple of questions. The first question he answered right, is, who is truly well off in this world? Right? Like, who has the good life? Right? What does it mean to have a good life? What does it mean to live well? Well, he's defined that as those who have accepted what God is doing in this world are well off. There's no better position to be in this world than a position in which you recognize that God is at work, that his kingdom is near, that he is working to transform all things into beauty and peace. And when we recognize that, we're blessed. It doesn't matter where we are in our life. It doesn't matter how much money. It doesn't matter what job or where we find ourselves Those who accept God and what he is doing are truly well off. And then he's also answered for us what it means to be good. He's shown us that what it means to be good is more than just not doing certain things, right? It's more than just avoiding bad behavior, which is the religious pressure upon us just to avoid doing things that are wrong. As long as I don't hurt people, as long as I don't do wrong things, I'm doing all right, I'm doing good. And Jesus wants to push us and he says, that's not it. You have to move from just being concerned about not doing things to be concerned towards actually loving people, actually doing things for me and for this kingdom. That what it truly means to be good is to love. So Jesus has offered his disciples and he's offered us a life that we can live in union with him, working with him, as Dallas Willard kind of says, working as part of this conspiracy within the world to undermine the structures of evil. Right? God is at foot. 
he is working in this world. His kingdom is working to undermine evil and we get to live in a union with him. We get to work with him in this way. But there are dangers that we face. And in these next two weeks, and really in Matthew 6 here, Christ wants to show us that there's dangers that face us, pitfalls, traps that will hinder us from experiencing this life. The first is reputation, and the second will be money. So this week we're going to look at reputation. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 6. We'll have words up on the screen as well, but if you, it's always great to look at it in front of you as well. So in Matthew 6, starting in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus gives us these three illustrations is really a warning to us as disciples that there's a trap. Every follower of Jesus, right? You've already experienced this in your life if you would consider yourself a follower. Every follower of Christ will at some point desire religious respect, will desire a reputation, will desire people to look upon them and say, they've got it together. This is someone I can trust. This is someone who knows what they're talking about. And this, this desire for reputation, right, it springs up in our life in all kinds of ways and we desire 
respect from all kinds of different people. It may be from our parents. It may be from friends. It may be from complete strangers that we desire respect. It may come from authorities in our life, in the church, at work, wherever, but we, we yearn for that praise and adoration, that approval that we get from people. In Christ's words, it's a, if, we, if we desire reputation, if we desire the praise of man, we will slide right back into the righteousness of the Pharisees. We will become more concerned with our actions than with our heart. And we will worry, constantly worry, about what we do and what it looks like to others. And within us, right, and, and around us, it, there, it's, it's so hard to escape this trap because we hunger for this. Right? If, if you're anything like me, and I think you are, I think all of us desire titles. We desire affirmation. It may be from different people. We may not care what some think of us, but we certainly care what others think of us. And we want to have that esteem and our culture as a whole, right, we really live in a world, in a culture today that really puffs up self-esteem and we say that you need to believe in yourself and we spend most of our lives developing and curating these beautiful resumes, whether we know it or not, right, but these beautiful resumes of who we are and why we're special and why we matter and if it's our spiritual life or our just life, we, we hold up things and say, look at me, approve of me. I deserve some recognition for the things that I've done. And the church, where you'd expect to be a safe place from some of these things, is not. Right? The church, in fact, can be even worse. It can be a place in which we do this more, right? where we lionize leaders. We esteem people who are, have titles behind their names or have a doctor in front of it. Or we, we tend to very much right, push to the front and to the center those who get esteemed, who get respect, the people who stand in front of us, right, myself, we, we heap praises on it and we value leaders, right? This is a danger within the church. It's an inherent danger, really, within any institution, but especially with us. You know, and, and if you've been part of Twin Cities Church, you've certainly experienced this. You know, as we develop leaders, as we develop church planters, as house churches continue to multiply, it's, it's hard not to desire titles. It's hard not to desire condom, or not condemnations, commendations, to desire people's respect, to desire people to look at us and say, right, this is somebody I can trust. This is somebody who handles the word of God well. Right, we desire these things. It's, it's impossible to avoid it. But Christ is offering us a different view, right? Within the kingdom, there is no seeking of titles, there is no seeking of verdicts of respect. There's respect and there's submission. But there's not a desire for these titles because we recognize, right, as you go through Jesus' life and his teachings and his disciples, it's really clear. If you read the Apostle Paul, I mean, the way that they speak, there's only one teacher. There's only one leader. There's only one king. We are all servants of his. That's how the kingdom operates, right? Paul will call himself a slave, right? Like there's, no, if I'm going to take a title, 
right? I, I'm, not, I'm not as great as the titles may seem to appear. There's only one who deserves those praise. That within the kingdom, servants are valued. What a refreshing idea to our culture, right? What a life-giving difference. Where instead of valuing people with gifts and skills and who are charismatic and who can be up front, no, we value service. We value servants. Christ is offering us a very different picture of the kingdom. Now, he's, he's not trying to tell us that we can't be up front, we can't have visible lives, we're not going to be doing things. We are. We're all going to be thrust into positions in which people will see us. Your good deeds will be seen. Right? That's inherent in this teaching. Like, our kingdom lives are visible. There's no hiding it. The way that we live, the things that we say, the teaching that we do, it's visible. None of it is hidden. But Jesus is pushing us. He's warning us to evaluate our motives behind what we do, behind these visible lives that we live. Why do we do them? And he gives us these three illustrations. They're not laws, but they're illustrations of how we can identify and look at our motives. Because we have to ask ourselves questions. Do we live the lives that we live to receive praise? Right? Like, why do I live the life that I live? Why do I do the things that I do? Is it to receive praise from people? Is it to receive praise from God? What am I after with the life that I'm living? Because all, we're all living a life. We're all living a very public life. We're all living a religious life in some regards. Why do we live the life that we live? For whose eyes are we living? If we're living a life for the praise of people, the text is pretty clear. You will get your reward. God graciously steps aside and allows us to receive praise. Right, because most of us have experienced this. If you're after someone's praise, if you need someone's affirmation and you seek it, you will get it. Right? We will get that affirmation. If it's a parent, if it's a spouse, if it's a boss, you can work hard to please them and they will be pleased with you. It'll be fleeting. <laughs> It'll be exhausting. Right? But you will get it. You will get that reward. And Jesus keeps saying that too. If you want to live a life in which you are after man's praise, you'll get the reward that you're looking for. It's not going to give you life, but it'll drive you. And for many of us, we get reward for the life that we live. Is that what drives us? The rewards that we get from the choices that we make, from the life that we've chosen to live. Because there are inherent rewards that we get from that. Is that why we keep doing the things that we do? Or do we live a life, do we live this life because we already have received every possible reward that we could ever receive? Do we live our life because we already have the one verdict of praise and approval that matters, that we're not after anyone's praise? Jesus gives us these illustrations to look at our motives. He gives us these stories, these three instances because our motives will be seen. Our motives will become apparent. We can't hide them. 
right? We're continually confronted with why we're doing what we're doing. And they're going to be seen. They're going to be seen in how we give. And so we start with that one, right? As you evaluate how you give, why do you give? Do you even give? Do you give to the church? Do you give to others? Do you give generously? I mean, what, if you give, why? Do you give with an expectation of receiving back? Do you give with an expectation of this is what I should do? This is how I get blessings back from God. If I give, then I will receive. Or do you give because you've received, because you have so much, because your Father who sees you has given you everything? It comes out in how we pray. Right? And it's such a beautiful illustration of prayer with the Lord's Prayer. Right? I mean, do you pray? What is your prayer life characterized by? How often do you pray? And when you do pray, what does it sound like? What does it look like? Do you pray for your kingdom, for your worlds, for what you're doing? Or are you praying for God's kingdom? Again, recognizing God is at work. God's kingdom is at hand. He is doing something. And I'm praying for that. I'm praying to be part of that. Or, are you, or is your prayer life characterized by your kingdom and your kingdom's needs? And when we fast, right? When we fast, why do we do these things? It, really, you know, it, the modern day, we don't fast that often. We probably should more. But really, it's that why do we do the spiritual disciplines that we do, if any? Right? Why do you have a discipline in your life? Maybe you have no disciplines in your life. If you do have a discipline of of prayer, of study, of fasting, why do you do it? Why do we seek these things? What are we after? Are we after the effects that they give us? Right? Do I fast because I believe that if I fast, then I will receive wisdom at the end of it? Or if I fast, then God is going to bless my efforts? If I, I need to read my Bible every morning, otherwise, right, like, if I don't, oh man, my day is just going to go terribly. I mean, do we do the things that we do? Do we have religious discipline in our life for the effects that they give us? Or do we do the disciplines? Do we have these aspects of our life because we know that they are the way in which we come into contact with the true Lord who nourishes and gives us life? So the questions really are, right? I mean, are we nourished by our life? Right? Does our life, does our ministry even, right? Many of us are in positions where we are in ministry to other, others. We are loving people. Is that what sustains us? The things that we do? Because I know for me that it does. It gives me a lot of life. It gives me a lot of encouragement. It excites me. Well, is that my motivation? Is it, do I do what I do because it feeds me? Or am I fed and nourished by Jesus himself? Is he my feast? Am I feasting on Christ or am I feasting on my life? If I'm not fed by Jesus, right, if your life is what feeds you and not Christ, you're living for you, for your kingdom and not for his kingdom. 
This is the whole danger. This is what Christ continually kind of warns his disciples about. You know, you can get to the end of the day and say, look at all the things that I did for you, Jesus, right? And he's like, I didn't even know you, right? You can live a life that is very, very good and have no room for Jesus in it. Your life will become a life of, of this, this term that used throughout the New Testament, right, of eye service. You will live a life for people to see and it will look good, but it will not give true life. The effect of living a life like this is to push aside the very presence of God as irrelevant. Like, is God even relevant in my day-to-day life? Is he a part of what I do? Or am I just doing things all the time? There's an intentionality and a discipline that goes with getting out of this trap. Christ continually tells us this. Go into secret. Go into your closet. Your father who is in secret will reward in secret. It takes a decision to move away from this outwardness and actually acknowledge the presence of God in our life. But are we? Or are we so busy doing things that there's no recognition of God? There's no recognition of his spirit. There's no actual presence of him in our lives. And there's a danger around us. There's a danger in our institutions, in our structures that we have. It's everywhere, not just the church. There's dangers within the church. There's dangers all over the place. But anytime you create a structure, right? anytime you create an institution or some sort of thing, the structure can easily replace the purpose of it. And we lose sight of why we do the things that we do. And we just start doing things. Right? The business world calls this mission creep. (laughs) In the church, we probably don't have a word for it, except for just falling away, slipping away, to borrow from Hebrews, kind of things like that. You You can be focused on what you're doing and forget why you're doing it. And in a lot of ways, the structure can create something in which it just, it makes it almost impossible to get back to that purpose. And within the church, right, Dallas Willard again kind of writes that, you know, the the church as a structure at times can create this kind of conspiracy of silence and shame within us where we can't ask certain questions, we can't talk about certain things, right? Sunday morning structures are such that don't allow these types of conversations to happen. We can get into this in our house churches, we can get to this into our life where we just keep doing kingdom things, We keep talking about kingdom stuff. We're just constantly at work that there is no presence of God in our lives. There is no seeking of his face, seeking of his will. And in fact, we kind of like it that way, right? If we're honest with ourselves, we prefer to stay busy. I'd rather be busy than actually being quiet. Because when I'm quiet is when I'm confronted with myself and I'm confronted by my motivations and I'm confronted with my sin. So why do we do the things that we do? Why are we living the lives that we live? What reward are we after? 
So we all are after something. There's a reason behind everything that we do. And it's at this point that Christ is such good news, right? That the kingdom offers us such good news, that the gospel offers us something. Because I can spend my entire life desperate to get affirmation, right? To get praise, to get a verdict that I matter, that I'm valuable, that I'm worth it, right? And many of us have spent our whole lives seeking it in every possible way in all of these different places. You know, it's a series of hopping from different sources of affirmation. As I think of my own life as a child desperately seeking my father's approval to then being a student seeking my teacher's approval to being an athlete seeking a coach's approval to college. You know, you just move to thing to thing to thing. This gives me life. This gives me meaning, right, to relationships. Now, finally, I have a wife who will give my life meaning and affirm me all the time. And to children, oh, here, now I can find, now I've got something to a job, to career, to ministry, right? We take those hopes and expectations, we take that desire for reputation and respect and we bring it with us into ministry as well. And we say, now I have arrived, right? Now I can do things, now I'm, finally, I'm doing good work. And we're desperate to get the approval, to get that verdict, but it just never quite comes. In Colossians chapter three, Paul addresses this so well when he's speaking to this employer-employee relationship. In Colossians 3, he tells us, right, for those of us who work for others, not to work by way of eye service. It's exactly what Jesus was just warning to, eye service, for people just to see you. Don't work, as a, don't work by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Because we can go with this, we can go with the teachings of Christ and still miss his point. We really can. We can hear the words of Christ, don't try to please people. We can hear that and say, fine, I will only try to please you, Lord. Right? It's a good, common, all right, I'll, my rest of my, I'm going to do everything for him. I'm not freed from my trap. I'm in the same spot I was. And instead of trying to please others, I'm just now trying to please God. I'm still looking at what I'm doing. I'm still very aware of my actions. My left hand definitely knows what my right hand is doing because I am desperately now trying to get the approval and praise of God. It's still eye service. I've just replaced the eyes. I'm still trying to get God's approval. That's not the solution. That's not what Christ is offering us. That would be another law, but Christ is not bringing down law to us. He's lifting the law from us because he's fulfilled it. What Paul is saying, what Christ is saying is, right, you have an inheritance waiting for you. Work hard. Don't try to please people because you already have everything that you possibly need. You have an inheritance waiting for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. Work hard. 
Don't, you don't need to please people. Paul will write this in Corinthians of, to the Corinthian church of how he doesn't do what he does to get their praise and approval, but he also doesn't do it to get his own praises and approval because he said the Lord is the judge and I know the outcome of that verdict. I know what he thinks of me. Christ is offering us freedom from this just in, incredibly oppressive desire to need approval from man or from God, that desperate need to get respect. And Christ offers it to us. He says, I give it to you. The only one who truly deserved the inheritance, who actually deserves respect, suffered the opposite of that, was beaten and mocked and ridiculed, got no respect that he deserved. The true and rightful king Right, suffered and died so that us, the mockers, the accusers, those who right, would not show respect, could get the respect that he has coming to him, could obtain the inheritance that belongs to him he shares with us. That's the good news of the gospel. We have the verdict that we've been so desperate to get. We have the approval of the one person that could actually whose verdict, whose approval could actually sustain us and give us hope. So as we live our lives, then we have to ask ourselves these questions, right? We have to evaluate as disciples of Jesus, we have to be pulling ourselves back to this truth. And we need to look at the life that we live. I need to, and I have to ask myself, right? What gives me life? Just look through your day, your week, your month. What energizes you? What gives you life? Why do you spend the time that you do doing the things that you do? Why do I spend my time the way that I do it? There's an exercise in one of the booklets, I think it's in the uh, Colossians booklet, where you're, or maybe the Ephesians, but where you look through your week and you, like, how do I spend my time? How do you spend your time? Why do you spend your time in those ways? What do you think that these things bring you, that you're so willing to invest in them so freely, that you spend your thoughts and your energy in those things. Why do you do what you do? How would you spend your time differently if I believed in the gospel? How would I spend my time differently if I believed that all my needs were met? How would I spend my time if I truly believed that I have an inheritance waiting for me? How would I spend my time, right, if I truly believed that I had that verdict of praise, of that I was, that God was pleased with me, that he looked upon me and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. How would I spend my time? What's your giving look like? Do you give? Why do you give? Where do you give? What's the motivations behind it? What does your prayer life look like? When do you pray? How do you pray? Why do you pray? How disciplined is your life? Are there any disciplines in it? Or have you completely kind of thrown off discipline? (laughs) I don't need any of these things. What's the motivation behind those decisions? What's the motivation? You may have an incredibly disciplined life. Or you may never miss a day of a Bible study or devotion or prayer. Why? Why don't you ever miss a day? 
Why are you so devoted to your disciplines? You may not. Why don't you? Why don't you have any disciplines in your life? Right? What, do, what are you after with your life? God is inviting us. He's inviting us all to evaluate our lives and to slow down and rely on his presence. Where in your life, in your week, in your day, is Christ wanting to work? Where does he want to show you himself? Are you working for your kingdom, for the praise of man, or are you working for Christ's kingdom because you already have the praise of your creator? We can desperately work and stay busy to receive acceptance and praise and love from others. Or we can rest. We can rest knowing that I have the acceptance and praise of the king. It's the king who is at work. God's kingdom is at hand. God is doing the work in this world. God is doing the work in my life. God is doing the work at my workplace. God is doing the work in my family. God is doing the work. And I join with him. It's a very different position from you doing the work. And we have to be honest because the default setting in our heart is to try to earn and to try to work and to try to get praise. And we will turn God into this and we will turn the good things in our life into ultimate things and we will have no room for him. This is the danger for us because all of these things are good. Giving is good. Prayer is good. Fasting is good. Family is good. Work, all these things that you say like I get life from are good things, right? They're good things that you're doing. There's a reason that we get that affirmation and it feels good. We can't turn those into ultimate things. We can't need them to sustain us because if we need those things to sustain us, we will be desperate for them and we will hold on to them too tightly and it will drag us back right, to a righteousness of the Pharisees where we have no longer have the ability to love each other. And we will only now have the ability to defend ourselves, fight for ourselves, and hold on dearly to the things that we think give us life. Right? I have to be able to have open hands with God's blessings. I have to be willing to give up the privileges in my life. I have to be willing to give up always being right. I have to give up always having titles. I have to give up the work that I have in order to love others. But I won't be able to do that if I'm fighting and working for my kingdom. So where is Christ inviting you? Right? What are those touch points that are going on in your life where Christ is inviting you to rest and to seek his presence and to rely on him to sustain you? We need to seek him and seek his presence, seek his kingdom, pray like he prays, love like he loves, because we have been loved by him. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for everything. We thank you for life. Lord, we thank you for the life that you lived. We thank you, Lord, that you freely gave up your life for us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the reward that is due to you. Lord, we thank you that you chose us 
that you brought us into your kingdom, that you've brought us into your family, that you consider us sons and daughters, co-heirs with you, that you have given us everything that we need, that we are lacking in nothing, and especially not lacking in acceptance. Lord, we thank you for loving us so extravagantly. Lord, we pray that we will grow to know that love more and more. Lord, we confess to you our selfishness and how easily and quickly we replace you in our lives with the things that are around us. Lord, we want more of you. We want more of your presence. Lord, we ask for you to continue the work that you've started Lord, we pray that your kingdom will become more and more visible and more and more real in this world and in our lives. Lord, help us to slow down and to experience you, to not create lives that have no room for you, but have lives that are built around you and built around your spirit and are built around the work that you're doing. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the love that you have for us. Lord, we want to grow in that love. We want to be mature in that love. So, Lord, continue to show us what it means to be loved by the King. Lord, be with us. In your name, amen.